Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's scripture is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 1 to 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Our centering prayer today will be connected to our breath, so it won't be spoken out loud, but will be connected to the inhale and the exhale. So as we inhale, we pray, gracious God, and on the exhale, we pray, lead us by your spirit. Gracious God, lead us by your spirit. Speak through me and open our ears to hear what you'd have to say to us today. Break through and wake us up to your grace and send us out to be your very agents, your hands and feet of resurrection renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're continuing through this series on the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes are interesting because throughout Scripture, or throughout the history of the church, there are some areas where you kind of get an idea of what should I do, how should I live, right? It's the Scriptures that give us the Ten Commandments. But the Beatitudes are something different than that. They're not prescriptions for how you should live. You shouldn't go out there and try to make yourself sad and mourn. Like we talked about last week. Try to make yourself poor in spirit. More it's saying, when you find yourself living in this world for long enough, bad things happen. And you will mourn. And when that inner voice says to you that God has forgotten you, and it's game over, 
you're actually more blessed than you realize because God would never forget you. Blessed are you when you mourn, for you'll be comforted. Blessed are you when you come to the end of your rope, when you are poor in spirit and you have nothing left. The world says God's forgotten about you, but God says, I know you, I love you, and I'll never leave you. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. And today, we get to, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. A friend asked at community group two weeks ago, what does the word meek mean? So this is, you know, this creates our dramatic intrigue and our suspense. You will find out what the word meek means and why it's good news for you today. But before we do, you have to consider who is speaking here. You have to consider who is Jesus. Because Jesus is giving his most famous sermon, his most well-studied and well-applied teaching in his entire ministry on earth. It's often called the Sermon on the Mount. And here he is speaking to this crowd of people who are hungry and thirsty, not only physically, but spiritually, relationally. And you have to consider the source. Because if he's just another good moral teacher or another great example that this world has given us, then yes, give some credence to his words. But it will be cold comfort when you actually get into deep water in your life. But if he is truly the image of the invisible God, the creator of the universe in the flesh, if that's actually who's speaking here, as Christianity claims, then it changes everything. Because he's not just a well-wisher on the sidelines saying, oh gosh, gee, I wish, I mean, I see it's not going well for you. I wish I could do something about it. I can't, but I hope this card makes you feel better. He's saying, I have all power and authority. I not only know the way the world works, I wrote the magic of reality. It all comes together in me. This is the truth. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said when considering this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian and pastor in Germany actually put his convictions into practice as he was executed by Hitler's Gestapo because he refused to bow to, bow to the Third Reich, especially as they were implementing mass genocide amongst the Jews. As a pastor, this man stood up to power and led other people to stand up to power and gave his life for it. He talks about the Sermon on the Mount and says, it's the word of the one who didn't relate to reality as a foreigner, a reformer, a fanatic, the founder of a religion, but as the one who bore and experienced the nature of reality in his own body, who spoke out of the depth of reality as no other human being on earth ever before. The Sermon on the Mount is the very word of the one who is the Lord and law of reality. In other words, when you listen to Jesus' words, you're actually going with the flow of reality. That's the claim, okay? So if you're investigating Christianity, you found this to be a safe and respectful place to process the claims of Christianity, before you get to the Ten Commandments or the Beatitudes or any of that, you have to ask, who is Jesus? Because if he really is God, then it matters what he says. And if he's not, then it doesn't matter anyways. Eat, drink, and be merry. Self-medicate, for tomorrow we die. But if he is truly the the foundation of all creation, listen to him. This is the place for you to do that processing. Community group on Wednesdays is the place where we ask those questions. I have many, I mean, I wake up in the morning thinking about conversations I have with you throughout the week. It's what I do for a living. But do the deep work of asking, who is Jesus? Now, what does it mean? 
Let's just look at what does it mean to be meek? Why does it matter? What does that look like? And then practically, how do you access it? See, what does it mean to be meek? Oftentimes, because meekness rhymes with weakness, we conflate those two meanings, right? To be meek is to be weak, to let other people walk on you, to always say yes, to be the doormat of life. That is a meek person. Except that's actually not what meekness means. Meek, I asked Florence this morning, honey, what do you think meek means? She said, I think it means to have a gentle strength or a humble wisdom. The best definition I heard came from Mark Scandrett in the book we're studying at Community Group. Meekness means strength under control. That's meekness. A while back, I was swimming with my group of friends in La Jolla, and one of the people we swim with, his name is Bill, Wild Bill Wildrick. If the Navy SEALs call you Wild Bill, you're probably pretty wild. When Wild Bill Wildrick retired, at 60 years old, he was the oldest Navy SEAL in the United States, still doing physical tests with the young guys in it, and keeping up. This is a physical specimen of humanity. Well, now he's at the time, he's 82 now. At the time, he was in his late 70s, and we're swimming. And there's a man who bumped into him in the open ocean, and it just happens. We're kind of like, you know, container ships out there. Some guys are like speedboats, and I'm like a container ship. And we're going, and every now and then you run into someone. It happens. And the polite thing to do is say, I'm sorry, I hope you have a good day, and keep going, which is what Bill did. But this other guy wouldn't let it go. And he was just a hothead. He had something to prove against Bill for some reason. And he's, you know, you fool, you idiot, you, in other words, and other language and all that. He wasn't letting it go. And I'm just tr- treading water watching this take place thinking, young man who's challenging Bill, Wild Bill, the Navy SEAL, you have no idea that this man has spent more time than you've been alive learning how to kill people underwater. Like, I don't think you want to start this fight here. And the entire time, Bill, who is a Christian man and is a part of the church up in La Jolla where he lives, was demure was de-escalating everything, was apologetic, was respectful, and I saw what it looked to be meek in the water when you know you could take this guy out with your pinky and you refuse to not only do that, but to even point it out. But the entire time, know you have strength and have it under control. That's meekness. It's because you're strong that you can appear weak or that you can enter into weakness, but it comes from a place of strength. I saw this happen in the halls of power at a big company in Seattle that rhymes with Amazon because it's Amazon. And I was up there doing some executive coaching for the the whole Alexa program. I mean, this is the team whose job it is to get artificial intelligence in every home in the world and on rocket ships and all kinds of other stuff. Powerful team. And we're in the headquarters building, one of the three or four or five or however many they have. And the head of the the C-suite, Kelly, power, influence. She's sharp. She was a collegiate athlete. Now she's at the top of her field in the world for one of the biggest companies heading up one of the most influential areas. And you could tell as soon as you walked in the room, everyone wanted to be on her team. And as soon as I started coaching her and watching and listening, I found out why. Because it was clear she had the power, clear she had the influence. And she would look for any edge to use that for members of her team to help them thrive. And then when they did, she'd step back and applaud them like she had nothing to do with it. 
That's meekness. It's the opposite of this other coaching, executive coaching stuff I did not too long ago at another tech company that was smaller because they're all smaller than Amazon. And you get this kind of little docket before you go in that tells you the quick and dirty on the team that you're teaching, all the good, all the bad, all the everything. And it just talked about low morale for this team, lack of trust for the team, lack of motivation for the team, 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 dynamics, 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 negative, 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 help us. And as soon as I walked in and I met the head of that team, I could figure out why. Because they had power. They had influence. But as soon as they walked in the room, everyone just wanted to cower because you weren't sure how they were going to use that sword to clear the land so the team can move forward or to cut somebody on the team down. And they can't operate. It's the opposite of meekness. If you take meekness, you know, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the land or inherit the earth. Take the opposite of that. Woe to you when you use your power to crush or push down other people because you're going to get nothing. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Now, there's a big diagnostic here. It asks you, are you grasping in life? Are you pushing others down? It's not a condemnation on you. It's an indication that you don't know how beloved you are. Oftentimes, the most, you, you know this from grade school. The biggest bully is the most insecure person on the playground. Flip that around. The person who knows who they are, deeply loved and secure no matter what, can go and interact with others from a place of safety and security and not having to prove anything. Now, multiply that times a thousand as you grow up to be a grown-up in this world. We still bring little playground us into this world. We just dress it up a little better. So... For many of you who have access to some sort of power or influence or affluence, it could be through your career, it could be through your social circles, um, it could be through your education, it could be just because God's given you a winsome personality and you can move things around. But whatever power you have, I'll tell, here's an, if you're here and you have a full set of clothes on, which you all do, thank you, if you have access to clean drinking water, if you have access to warm meals, you're already in the top echelon of the global economy, even if it doesn't feel like it. So you have some power. How do you use it? Consider Jesus who, and what's called the Last Supper, on the last night he was with his friends. He's the honored guest at the meal. And it says, when Jesus considered that the Father had put all things in his hands and given all things unto him. Ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. What do you think comes next? Because it basically starts the sentence, when Jesus realized he had all power and authority, what did he do next? He took off his outer robe, came around the table, and began to wash his disciples' feet. That's meekness. That's power under control. That's strength under control. That's a gentle wisdom, caring for others. So what does it look like for you to use your power on behalf of others? Now, to those of you who are saying, I actually don't have power. I don't know how I'm paying for my rent. I don't know how I'm paying for my medical bills. I don't know how I'm paying for lunch. So it would be nice to have some power to figure out how to wield. I also invite you to consider Jesus, who appears powerless before the authorities the day he goes to the cross, and it says, like a lamb before the shearers is silent, so he did not utter a word. He knows he has power and authority, but it looks like he's about to get crushed, and he... Another place where it says, 
that where the authorities are asking him, hey, are you really who they say you are? He says, if I wanted to, I could call on a legion of angels to crush this whole place, but I choose not to. I lay down my life on behalf of my people. So to the powerful, he says, how are you using your power in a way that gives life or takes it, in a way that grasps or gives, powerful diagnostic. And to the powerless, he says, you have more power available to you than you realize, that nobody can ever take away from you, ever. Which leads us to the second part, for they will inherit the earth, or they will inherit the land. This is quoting Psalm 37 11. And I want to back up a little bit on that. Psalm 37, 11. Let's just go back to Psalm 37, 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret over those who prosper in their way, over those who carry out evil devices. So when you feel like, hey, I've been trying to play it right here, and these people are really evil people, and I can tell, and they're doing well, and I'm not. What's going on here? It says, be patient there. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. I'm not going to take vengeance. Do not fret, it only leads to evil. For the wicked shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Goes on to say, verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land. What does it mean to inherit the land? Now, on one hand, there's something very ironic happening here. Because every Jewish person in Palestine at this time, in Jesus' day, would have a reference that the landowners were one of the most hated people groups in the whole society. It was the landowners who possessed the land. It was the landowners who held it by violence and oppression and would hold on to it and then make all the little peasants pay a percentage of their crops, of their yield. And Jesus turns it upside down and says, you who feel like you're powerless actually have more power than you realize. It's you little ones who are eventually going to have power to possess the land. Now, Jesus is redefining what it means to possess earth, to inherit land. Because every Jew of Jesus' time knew that the Hebrew scriptures were clear that only God owns land. Only God, this was... Only God owns land. So Psalm 24, God says, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Leviticus 25, 23, where God says, the land is mine. And they even had a system called Jubilee. Now follow me here because this really matters. The, the point is, all land is God's, okay? But you're gonna inherit the land. Think about that. They even had a system of Jubilee where every 49 years, all land would default and reset back to the original occupants. That was called Jubilee. So if you lost your land because you couldn't afford it, on the 49th year, there was the Great Reset and everything went back to the original families. There are all sorts of economic and game theory reasons on why this is brilliant, but right now just hold it as, why, why did they do that? Because it was never your land anyways. All land belongs to God. I think deep down we can get in touch with this if you really try. I think our Native American brothers and sisters help us a lot more to understand that there's no such thing as owning land. I have a deed down at the courthouse that says I own a plot of land in North Park. Do I really own, like, what's it mean to own the land? Even if you say, I'm, I'm going to push you as this theologian Richard Rohr pushed me. I'll just let Richard Rohr talk to you. Here's what he says. Okay, you own land. 
You own cars, you own clothes, you own a 401k, you own cryptocurrency, you own a lot of things, great. How much are you gonna own five minutes after you're dead? It really is an illusion. Now, before you think I'm kind of an annihilist or a nihilist or any of that, there's actually something humbling and challenging here. All land, we're gonna keep it at land since that's the text, all land belongs to God. So what does it mean? Not that if you are meek and you use your strength under control that you will have more real estate. Instead, it invites you to realize something more humbling and more empowering. The humbling thing is you don't own anything. I mean, ultimately, your possessions aren't yours. Ultimately, your land is not yours. Ultimately, your health is not yours. Ultimately, your kids are not yours. Ultimately, your parents are not yours. Now, that's humbling. It all belongs to God, which is then empowering, because God gives you everything you need every day and will see you through. So to say my kids are not mine, they're God's, you see that there's a double lens going on there. Of course, on one hand, I'm charged with caring for these kids. But my prayers can be desperate in a healthy way where I say, these kids are yours even more than they're mine. So help me to be a good dad. I pray for you every day. Lord, you care for this church more than I do. It's yours. So help me to be a good pastor. You care for my life more than even I do. So help me to be as healthy as possible. My money is yours, not mine. This is one of those, you know, how much money should I give to the, to the work of God in this world? And a friend said to me, the question is not how much of my money should I give to God's work. The question is, how much of God's money am I going to keep for myself? That's a whole other way of looking at it, which can open up generosity in new ways. It all belongs to God, and that's ultimately good news. And it goes even further. Because there actually is a literal piece to this, where the meek will inherit the earth. What, what could that possibly mean? Let's go to the final closing pages of Scripture. These are the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22. And just listen to this beginning of Revelation 21. This is a picture of what the resurrection kingdom of God looks like that is coming but not here yet. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them, and will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. So in a way, Jesus is saying, Blessed are the meek, because that's your actual inheritance. See, Christians who believe in a new creation... Christians who believe in a heavenly realm where God truly reigns as the king of all creation... It's not an invitation to view life as an escape hatch into heaven one day so we can get out of here. It should actually make you more present, more confident, more humble, more meek now. Because you can say, all things are mine. Even this too will be healed and made right. And so you move forward 
with confidence, with humility, facing this world as it is, and holding on to hope, a new way altogether. Now, what does it look like? There's a new posture. Instead of comparing ourselves to one another, or using our power to push others down, or letting others run us over, we begin to bow. First, you bow to the sacred source of your life. These are all from Mark Scandrett's book that we'll discuss on Wednesday at Community Group. You bow to the sacred source of your own life. You get in front of the stars at night. I took Joshua camping last week, and there was a part late night where we just looked up and imagined how many stars. The God that created all that knows me and loves me. Teddy Roosevelt used to do this with his cabinet when he was president. They would be making a huge decision that would affect national and international concerns. And before they'd make the decision, he'd take his cabinet out to the woods and lay them down in a field underneath the stars and explain to them how far at that time we understood the stars were, how vast the universe is. And he'd say, I think now we have comprehended our rightful scope and size and importance in this universe. Let's go back and make this decision. Recognize your value the sacred source of your life, and then bow to affirm your dignity and worth. Psalm 139. How, how vast the amount of thoughts God has about you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You were knit together in your mother's womb. Before your days began, God was already thinking about you. That's the true identifier of who you are. But then, as you bow to affirm your own dignity and worth, this all takes time, by the way. Then you have to realize the person next to you or across from you is also created in the image and likeness of God. So now, it humbles you. It helps you get along with people you otherwise could not get along with. You can pray prayers like, God, I don't see your image in them at all right now, but apparently you do. Give me your perspective. Give me your patience. Give me your humility. Make me meek. And then you bow to give and receive help. That interconnectedness. That's one of the things I love about Know Your Neighbor here. I, I tried to, it, yesterday, it was great. I had the honor of being at the grill, cooking up the food. And I saw a neighbor looking over the fence. He was nicely dressed and well put together. And I just went over and I said, can I tell you what's going on here? And I told him. And I told him just like I told you earlier. Different neighbors coming together, food, music, joy, connection. And he just looks at me and he goes, how can I help? This is amazing. There's something special here. And what I love is that we are not a church who comes in with resources, with just something to give. That's patronizing. That's dehumanizing. We actually come in and say we're a part of this neighborhood. We have something to give and something to receive. Everyone has a story to tell. Everyone has something to listen to. And I love that yesterday there was a kid, who I'll keep his name out of it, um, who lived, I know lives on the street here. But he is a hustler in a great way. And he knows all the business owners. And that kid eats well. And he brought to-go packages of good food from an expensive restaurant in our neighborhood that had not been opened, because he knew that if it, they'd been opened, we wouldn't be able to use them. And he said, I just brought food for the get-together today. We all have something to give. We all have something to receive. 
But all of that is a part of the, the big thought. When you are fully at home in yourself, when you know how loved you are, when you know that you stand to inherit all things and that is inalienable and can never be taken from you, you have a new strength, a new confidence to move forward with power under control. When you do that, whether it's your work team or your workout group or your neighborhood or your family, it gets renewed and transformed more and more to reflect the peace of the kingdom of God. And as you do that, you become more truly alive. You become more and more the person that God's created you to be. So let's move forward together. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray now that you would lead us by your spirit. 